Welcome to this policy and practitioner discussion as part of the CFID Head project. Today, we hope to make visible the dialogue, challenges and opportunities that present themselves when dealing with heritage loss. We'll be particularly focusing on Seaford Head in East Sussex, the archaeology of which is threatened by coastal erosion. Seaford Head is currently the subject of a pilot study rapidly assessing and recording the archaeology of the site to inform future heritage management decisions. And it's those sorts of decisions and processes that we're going to be talking about today in this podcast. I'm really excited to meet all of our guests today. They include archaeologists, heritage practitioners and local council members. So let's meet them. Hello, I'm Hannah Fluck and I'm Head of Environmental Strategy at Historic England um, and I'm also the Vice Co-Chair for Europe of the Climate Heritage Network. Hi, I'm Tom Domit. I'm the Head of Historic Environment for the National Trust. Hello, my name's Anushka Rawdon and I'm the Cultural Heritage Lead for the South Downs National Park Authority. Hello, my name is Adam Chugg and I'm the Town Clerk at Seaford Town Council in Seaford in East Sussex. Hi, I'm John Sycrave. I'm an Archaeological Project Manager from Archaeology Southeast, part of University College London. I'm your host, Emily Johnson. I work at Archaeology Southeast too as an Archaeological Animal Bone Specialist, and I also run our programme of digital outreach like this podcast. So I'll be facilitating today's discussion. So for people who don't know the site at all, let's talk first to Adam Chugg about Seaford Head in the present. Thank you. Yes, Seaford Head is an iconic cliff top above our town um, and obviously on the edge of the coast and it's owned by the council on behalf of our community. Um, it's a massive green space, part of the area is a nature reserve and we work with partners such as the Southdown National Park, Sussex Wildlife Trust and others to maximise ecology care and care for the landscape. Part of the area is also the Seabrookhead Golf Course that we own and manage and where we take an ecological approach to golf course management with minimum use of pesticides, wildlife corridors, ecology to encourage bees and other insects, and also a borehole supplying all the water to the course instead of using mains water. We're also, as a council, aware of the great historical importance of the site, this Bronze Age, Iron Age, and also World War I and World War II history on the site. And we, we hope to act very much as custodians of this land. That's great. John, can you tell us more about this archaeology? Yeah, the uh, the site is uh, Seaford Head, is a scheduled ancient monument. Um, it's listed as a Iron Age hill fort, a, uh, a Bronze Age barrow um, as well, and also uh, the listing mentions the the World War Two remains that that, that Adam mentioned. Um, despite this like statutory protection for the site, really all of our knowledge just comes from uh, two small excavations, one of which happened in the 1870s, led by Lane Fox, uh, later Pitt Rivers, um, who excavated across one of the, uh, the ditches of the Iron Age Hill Fort and the uh, Bronze Age Barrow. Um, and then in the 1980s by uh, a guy called Owen Bedwin. Um, now, those two small excavations have uh, proven that it's nine age hill fort dating maybe to around 300 BC, possibly also has a, a Roman element to it as well. Um, and, uh, and, and gave a, a, a middle bronze age date for the bronze age barrow. That's pretty much the, the sum total of the information that was uh, available uh, prior to our survey starting. Great, so what has the survey uncovered? Have we found out anything new? Well, we've added to that information, really. So we've we've undertaken a, a, an accurate survey of, of the monument, so a, a topographic survey, um, 
measuring the the height difference across the monument, uh, showing where the location of the barrow is, things things like that. We've also done a geophysical survey, so we've started seeing whether or not there's evidence for potential archaeological features uh, under the ground. Um, in all, and, and and this is important because if there were to be any future investigation of the site, those are the first places that we would start targeting. Um, and our geophysical survey has uh, shown various sort of anomalies um, uh, where which we could target, which may be archaeological features. So, um, so, so yes, our knowledge is building, um, but but is far from complete. The other thing that we've done is a, a, is a drone survey of the uh, of the monument, both using photogrammetry, which is a technique of taking thousands of images and using them as a composite in order to uh, create an accurate sort of photographic model of the site. We've also uh, flown the drone along the cliff edge. And on that cliff edge, you can see the exposure of archeological features. You can see the, uh, the, the outer ditch for the Iron Age hill fort really clearly, and some other both natural and potentially archeological features there as well. So yes, we've increased our knowledge and understanding of the site. Is it a complete understanding? No, it's not, but it's, but it's provided new and more accurate data as to, as to what's there. Exactly. I mean, I think you'll agree with me that the Seaford Head project was never supposed to give a whole complete archaeological understanding of the site. It's supposed to inform people so they can properly have these sorts of discussions, right? Yes. Yeah, quite. It's, it's it, you know, you, you're never in a week or so or the, which we took for the survey going to um, record the whole of a four hectare Iron Age hill fort and Bronze Age and World War II site. It just, it, it, it won't get done. And it's, it's, it's about doing what we can um, with resources available. Definitely. So we've talked a bit about coastal erosion affecting Seaford Head. Um, but Hannah, I wonder if you can talk to us from a climate sort of perspective, like why is this issue arising now? Yes, um, so this is an issue that's always been there. Our coastline exists because it's where the wet stuff meets the dry stuff um, and those waves eroding the, the cliff lines that that's been going on for thousands of years um, it so to a certain extent it's something that's always been happening and some of these sites which were located at the coastline have been um, it, we're always going to be exposed to those processes what's happening now and what is going to happen in the future um, relates to our changing climate so I think we all know that us humans have done a pretty good job of um, screwing things up a little bit so that our climate is changing at a rate which is far greater than that which it has changed before. Broadly speaking, it's getting warmer and wetter in the summer. I've got that wrong, wrong way around, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> getting hotter and drier in the summer and warmer and wetter in the winter. And our sea levels are rising at, a, at a, quite a, a rate that means that the, the that meeting between the land and the sea is becoming more intense tense for, for longer. Um, the erosion at the coast that we're experiencing is in part due to those changing sea levels, but it's also affected by changes that we see in our precipitation. So those extremes of things getting wet and dry do change the way in which our grounds affect our ground stability. So some of the erosion that we're seeing um, at, at, at those cliff sites is, is also in relation to the way in which heavier rain, more intense rainfall is happening and also more prolonged dry periods that leads to sort of shrinking and swelling and cracking of the ground. Um, what 
we're seeing now is just the tip of the iceberg. We know that these processes that stem from, from this changing climate are going to get more and more extreme. So um, this is this is just the, the, the beginning of the sorts of scales of change that we're going to see um, that, are, that will be affecting all of our heritage um, around the coast and, and indeed inland as well. Yeah, definitely. And of course, that's been seen at Seaford Head in, in relatively recent months and years by those pretty dramatic cliff falls, um, which have been yeah quite the thing to behold. Adam, how is this heritage loss going to affect you as the local landowner? Yes, I mean, really picking up picking up on what, what Hannah was saying, Seaford is on the coast and therefore very much in the front line with the effects of climate change, as she was explaining, accelerating coastal erosion and also increasing the risk of coastal flooding. So for us, it's obviously about understanding as best we can what is happening. But our responses, there's a range of responses from pure public safety, moving fences and paths back from cliff edges when there are cliff falls, warning the public to stay away when the coast is stormy to work with partners such as those here today to see how best we manage this landscape in this time of change. We're also a council, you know, doing all we can to work with our community in terms of trying to grow community involvement and understanding in response to climate change as well. And Tom, as your role in the National Trust, how does this affect as a like, National Trust as a landowner of attractions along coastal areas? I mean, the, the, yeah, the big thing for us is is the scale. You, you, if you scale this up in a national way, it, it just multiplies the complexity of, of everything that you're dealing with. So Trust owns around uh, 700 plus miles of coastline. In terms of planning, how we think long term about coastal change, Hannah's mentioned how, how it can be. There are a lot of different factors at play. This isn't just one thing, rising sea level or increased storminess. It's about the rainfall, it's about the varying geologies, it's about the topography, all of those things coming together. And so actually when we start to try and get a picture at a national scale, it's really difficult. It's mm. coast erosion is inherently quite unpredictable, very complex. And as we project that into the future, that becomes harder and harder to do. So that's one thing about getting that planning in. There's, there's an issue as well around the, the monitoring and how we actually keep track of the changes that are happening at that sort of scale. Um, yeah, and there's some, there, there is some really interesting work emerging there and, and there is a huge role there for, for people, for citizen science, for, for mm -hmm. public engagement, particularly to help us do that. Um, you know, we've got, we've got a, a really interesting, just a bit of a really simple bit of signage down on the Purbeck coast uh, that explains a little bit around uh, coastal erosion and, and, and coastal processes um, and then has a little slot in it where you can insert your smartphone uh, and take a picture along a stretch of coastline. And we've been collecting that for, I, I think, maybe seven years now. And it's actually building up a really great archive of, of yeah. the change that's happening. So there are there is some simple ways to do it. Um, and particularly then when it comes to their heritage at the coast, again, it, it, it's that scale. There, you know, once we understand how the impacts are playing out in different places, there, there are a huge number of archaeological sites along the coastline that are going to be impacted by coastal erosion, by coastal change. Uh, and the reality is that 
the, the resources are, are finite. You know, John, John even has mentioned, and, and as part of the Seaford Hub, it's about a, what's the kind of proportionate response? What can we do with the resources that we have? And what's the best way to apply them? And, and that, you know, that really hits at that, at that national scale of how do we prioritize you know, a finite set of resources against that? And as soon as you start having that discussion, you get into really, it forces some conversations about choice and what choices are we making and why, you know, where do we intervene? Yeah. Um, and and that, that's a, a really interesting area. Just to, just to say that's part of uh, what we're trying to do with this project in terms of this podcast and other digital outreach things that have been funded by the South Downs National Park Authority as, uh, as part of this work, because it's, 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 it's starting that conversation with members of the public, because the, like you say, Tom, the, the choice has to be with tax paying, time giving, uh, you know, members of the public, what, what do, how do they want uh, to uh, to to take this forwards or not you know it's um how much desire is there to uh, for instance as a as a much greater project at Seaford Head or not you know it's uh, and um and and we've we've got to have a mechanism by which we can uh, talk to uh, local and national populations about that also just worth thinking that actually all these interventions also come with a that not just a financial cost but a carbon cost as well and not just that but the collections themselves so as archaeologists when we investigate sites and when we excavate those sites we're creating archives and materials that have to be kept somewhere um, and they have to be kept in particular conditions um, that that also brings a cost so there is a moral um, element to this decision about like Tom, Tom and, and John have described those those choices we make about when we deploy that that resource when we use that that carbon budget in some ways i suppose to to really make sure that we're doing that to best effect and for something that is in the public interest so um absolutely the the, the public element of this and and the 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 reason behind why we do anything to do with heritage is about people it's about the yes. stories about people and those places and the way in which we can share that 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 connection through time between generations, both backwards and forwards, it's it's, it's really about it's about the future. People think we deal in the past, we, we don't really. <laughs> I I'd say we're we're all about the future. So it, it 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 is a very complex issue that's really caught up in in a lot of the the kind of ethics about how we make these sorts of decisions and how we prioritise. And I I think it's it's a challenging area. I think um, as well, it, it's challenging ourselves as a sector to think about what value means. Um, and it's, it, you know, what is the value of what we're preserving today? And will it have the same value tomorrow? You know, what's important to people in the future? It comes back to just what Hannah was saying. I think the other point that um, has come to mind for me as well is that we're also having to challenge ourselves professionally in that a lot of the certainties that we've um that we've established in terms of um, preserving particular material culture, for example, so the objects that are in our museums or in our historic houses that are cared for by the National Trust, 
we assume certain things about environment and about preservation and about um, risk. And all of those things are coming into play now to actually challenge our assumptions around preservation in the long term. So it it's an issue that isn't only pervading our landscapes, it's pervading everything about heritage in the round. And I think that's also important to really consider because we're not just talking about resources for landscape that are stretched, we're actually talking about resources across the entire um, cake that is the heritage sector you know it's our museums and galleries it's our landscapes mm. it's our um, built heritage it's it's the full gamut really definitely and what happens when people don't know about their heritage that's right mm. under their feet or what happens if it means different different things to different parts of the public Hannah maybe you have an insight yeah that's it's a very good point I think people can't value what they don't know um, mm. and what they don't know about. And I think for an awful lot of us, we we exist and go about our daily lives in a world where we know, we, we view it through different lenses um, and, and we know what we know, but we don't know what we don't know. And as soon as someone starts um, explaining or sharing some of that knowledge, which I think as archeologists is, is, our, is our responsibility to share what we know, um, you do start to, to engage with and understand and relate to places differently mm. and and I think that's one of the the real challenges with some of these issues around loss of heritage is that in many instances we've just heard from John how much we just don't know about this mm. site that we're losing what we don't know we don't know <laughs> and mm. and actually it, it it's very hard then to think about how you prioritize that um and and what information do we need in order to to understand how people might value it if they knew about it so sharing that to help people make informed decisions based on on information and making sure that we've, we've shared that knowledge is is a really critical part yeah definitely and 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 also i suppose by by starting this discussion about sites like seaford head yes we're talking about seaford head but we're also talking about a process that affects uh, people's homes um and um is going to change the world around um around people you know it's like uh if if seaford head isn't seaford head or, do, or looks significantly different due to a massive cliff fall then uh had, how does that start making people feel about their their place and their home mm. and also the level of risk that they might be personally at or their houses might personally be at it's kind of opening a, a Pandora's box into <laughs> into what might happen in 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 the future and how you know coastal erosion and, and climate change is going to impact communities. Yeah, are we better to be blissfully unaware then, or or not? I mean, clearly not. Yeah, I was just going to share um, an analogy that that one of um, Tom's colleagues at the National Trust often uses about some of these sites uh, being canaries in the mine, as being the kind of the or the litmus paper was the, the thing that is the indicator that something is changing and sometimes quite dramatically and often what we find with some of these heritage sites is that they are that early warning system mm. but also it, it it's it's a it's a place where we can observe those changes and understand those changes and it isn't people's lives or homes um and and, and that might be an easier space to, to really think through what what some of these changes might mean I think, I mean, I, I think to say that it's very noticeable in our town that there is a growing consciousness of being on this front line 
in mm. climate change. So we're the canaries, if you like, yeah. uh, or whatever, maybe a bigger, louder bird, perhaps. I don't know, because because certainly uh, we've, we we recently had Storminus, for example, mm. and there was you know mm. the, the sea came the sea came up and and there was you know quite quite a bit of damage along the seafront and stuff like that. So that's happening more and more often. So in coastal areas such as ours, there is this awareness that we are on this front line and and the change is happening as well the mm. conversation changing from has changed from something that will be in the future to it's going on now things like the big cliff falls and also this and therefore this project fits into that context really i think it's really helpful to have things that people can help them to understand and, and grasp really what's happening and i well, i just think it's it's fascinating and amazing that that one of the, the maybe one of the biggest values that an archaeological site can have is expressed through its loss mm and the story that that tells about the future and i think that is just the most the most incredible thing to be able to reflect on and and a reminder of of how thoughtfully and carefully that we need to approach this sort of topic and around around change and transformation and loss and and how that helps us think differently I was just going to add to that. Um, I think what Tom said is really important that actually on a variety of different levels, it's a bereavement process. It's a process mm -hmm. of loss um, in terms of the very different emotions that it might elicit from local people or from people nationally, depending on the um, significance of the monument or its profile, for example. But I think we are talking about having a conversation about letting go and a grieving process in that sense. Um, and I sometimes think that, particularly with archaeology, there can sometimes be a discomfort around the emotional connection to the past. You know, we, we've historically been a sector that's had one foot in science and one foot in art, and we've drifted more and more towards the sciences. But actually now is the time when, you know, we're facing quite radical changes and quite radical questions about the future as well. So I think what Tom said there is really important. Yeah, and if I may add that, we've got these sorts of outputs from the Seaford Head project. We, mm. We've got Alina Rizedo working on this as a local, as an artist who might help us connect more deeply with that side of the narrative. Yeah. And that's going to be really exciting. Hannah? Yeah, I, I just wanted to add, I, I have a PhD student who's exploring how we try and communicate and understand some of these um, processes of loss. And she's developed an approach which recognises that not everybody necessarily agrees or even has the same view as to what it yeah. is that they value or they enjoy or they like or they understand to be the, the story or the, the history of, of, of these places. Um, and she's developed an approach using interactive documentary to capture what might be quite different and disparate views in one place recognizing that what they have in common is that location is that particular site um, and then enabling the the viewer i suppose it is with an interactive documentary documentary um, to navigate their own way through the story of that site um, she describes it as a little bit like one of those choose your own adventure books mm. um, I don't know if anyone had one of them when you were a child <laughs> um, but I think it's it's a it's really important to recognize that that applies not just to the the history of those sites but also to the perception of of loss so I did some work with an anthropologist a few years ago in the east of England 
looking at coastal change. And we went to this particular part of East Anglia because the rate of change of that coast is, is one of the most rapid in the country. And we wanted to ask people how they felt about that very rapid environmental change and how that made them feel about the heritage of, of, of that place and, and the loss that they might be experiencing. Um, one of the messages that came back quite strongly was what that actually what they liked about that place was that nothing had changed. They felt like nothing had changed. And what they meant was there weren't any new housing developments. There weren't any big supermarkets or industrial estates. And that sense of continuity of a coast where the sea is pummeling the land um, was something that they felt more strongly than the fact that 10 meters of it had vanished, of the land had vanished into the sea in the past, um, the past couple of years. So we have to be very wary about how we interpret um, not just the, the heritage, but also that that perception of change. Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because if I think of that landscape, the first site that comes to mind is the, that Habsburg site with all of those um, fantastic people's uh, footprints from about 800, 900,000 years ago. And what an amazing find that was and how short that actually lasted before it was eroded and disappeared into the sea. And, uh, and for, for me as an archeologist, it was like, oh, what an amazing site. And then it's gone. And it's mm -hmm. like, uh, what a loss. But uh, yeah, you can imagine that that people used to that environment almost enjoyed the uh, the dynamic nature of the fact that things, you know, and unless obviously your house is immediately adjacent to it, but um, mm. but yeah, there's different there's different viewpoints, isn't there? And it's uh, it's it's trying to remember all of those. Yeah, well, we took um, and and we've already talked a bit about about challenge, about loss, but there is absolutely kind of opportunity and creation going on here as well amazing discoveries that have come through that kind of change and and in a lot of ways that kind of change is essential to us continuing to grow our understanding of places and that that loss is an essential part of, of that um i think you know that's and that's you know that becomes a challenge as well in that sometimes quite ephemeral nature, I suppose, of the exposure of some of those new new sites. Um, the ability to respond quickly is is something that, that is a struggle. Yeah, I suppose there's new sites being discovered, but there's also like sites like Seaford Head, and they do have statutory protection. They are scheduled ancient monuments. They're supposed to be like preserved and looked after for future generations. And I suppose it's that it's that shift in in how we see these our iconic heritage sites in the country, such as Seaford Head, that it, it you know some things are impacting it now, which is beyond our control. We can't we can't stop the the the, the cliffs eroding at, at at that point. So we need to. In, our response can't be one of uh, protect for future generations necessarily on 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 that site it's the so what should our response be um yeah. i suppose that's that's one of the things that we're we're looking at yeah and i think one of those ways could be 3d modeling we we've done some of this with the seaford head project right we are going to one of our outputs will be a preserved forever virtual you know, uh, 3D model of the site, but you know, it can't quite quite replace the the staggering cliffs and and glorious beauty of being on the seabed head. 
Anushka, did you have something? Yeah, it was something I was hoping we'd touch on in this, but I guess there's a a provocation back to ourselves as, as a sector in that we've actually strongly communicated the idea that we can preserve things <laughs> against the hands of time. That's That's what we've done through legislation, through policy, coming from a museums and galleries background. The truth of the matter in preserving material culture, so all of the objects that we get through archaeology or, or um, as inherited works, whether it be fine art, etc., all we're doing is slowing a rate of deterioration. That's all we can do. That's what a conservator will tell you. I mean, you know, and, and we're good at it. We can we can slow things. But I think we've also created a situation where I sometimes ask myself, is the public's perception that we can preserve everything and mm. anything and I think that's a provocation back to us about the messaging that we've spent a long time as a sector putting out which is now going to need to be very rapidly nuanced when we think about the challenges ahead. In my other role as a commercial archaeological field work manager when we're dealing with sites that aren't under statutory protection um, that there's there's always been a sort of um, acceptance of the fact that in the face of say a, a whole area being sort of like a developed upon and, and and being impacted that that we're given i suppose a fair chance to try and find the most significant aspect of that um and then try and preserve that by record not necessarily preserve that in situ for for all time mm -hmm. because the development is going ahead on that area and an acceptance that when we're, we're not going to see every single part of of that site or that that landscape that we'll we'll do our best and what is practical within an amount of time and an amount of budget to do that and it's uh, so i suppose that regard uh, it's commonplace for us to view sites which are being destroyed mm. you know that's that's what's happening to them and the fact that we're only recording a percentage or, or our, our best understanding of that before they go yeah, it's it's just because Seaford Head is an, an a scheduled ancient monument that that we like that there aren't buildings on it, so that we we aren't losing it by development. We're losing it by this this other uh, non non human uh, driver. Yeah, I, I think Anishka is absolutely right. I think the way in which we we've we've sort of set ourselves up for for a challenge is is a, an interesting one. Um, one of the the messages that that actually the conservation sector and heritage sector is, tries to promote is that we are about managing change the majority of us working in heritage yeah. are managing change and what we do i've often said we we take a long view so our real expertise is that we think in multiple generations both backwards but also forwards so when we're talking about the reasons behind some of the, the designation why some sites are preserved um, as as um, or scheduled as um, listed as as nationally significant, um, that's because we want to preserve them for future generations, or look after them. Now, what that that preservation looks like, it's about that information, it's about that storytelling, it's about that connection, mm. people and places through time. That can take many different forms. So, as we face those pressures of change, how we can respond to and manage that, that's the essence of 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 what we do. And I think sometimes we forget that. <laughs> sometimes other people forget that. 
but I think we're far better at it. Um, I'm also really minded of that old undergraduate archaeology essay question of archaeology is destruction, discuss. Yeah. And, um, and I think of that every time I think of this topic, because we can't, as archaeologists, as soon as you start investigating, you are removing that information and that evidence. So what we try and do is make sure that we apply those techniques that, that enable as much of that information to be retained and then communicated. And that's, that's the other essential point, communicated and shared. Um, so conserving for future generations can take a lot of different forms. Seaford Head itself, actually, in its more recent history, has shown us that heritage value has fundamentally changed over time. So the reason um, Lane Fox was there was because the site was allegedly going to get blown up to form a breakwater. So that's why he went in and excavated. Um, you've then got a 200-year-old golf course that went in over the top of a scheduled monument. So the site itself, the thing that I find most fascinating with it is that it shows us how heritage value has changed actually over a few hundred years, let alone that longer deep time sequence. And that, I think, is interesting. It's interesting to explore that. Um, in and of itself and I think Seaford provides us with something quite unique in terms of that that history I, I mean the thing about the breakwater is just classic you know it was almost like an emergency intervention before the site was due to get blown up yeah there's a whole history to the near blowing up of the site which absolutely <laughs> um, and there was actually <clears throat> my understanding in the 19th century there was an unsuccessful attempt um, to do some of the blowing up and you can still see the bottom of of of, of Seaford Head, the what we you know the evidence of that, if you like, which is in Seaford Museum. So you're right. I mean, that's what I was going to talk about. Is that the co this coast is fascinating because it's a, picking up the points people are making. It's not an accident that Seaford Head is a massive green space. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not an accident. That's that's about what people have done over the last, especially in the last hundred years or so. Go further west from us, you know, between Bryson and Newhaven, the coast was built upon. Um, and when that happened, people stepped forward to, to make sure that didn't happen, coming across through Seaford mm -hmm. and onto Eastbourne. So all of that is green because of the actions people took within the 1920s in response to greater development going on, going on to the west of us. Um, so it's not an accident how it looks now. It is about the decisions people have made, the choices mm -hmm. people have made, the campaigns people have had in the past, that it, lo that it looks like it does now. And finally, I want to say in this part is about in the context of the town of the town council, that, that's part of us, what do we think, you know, is because what is a successful, what is a successful coastal town in this context, you know, is our job to preserve everything and aspect and welcome the tourists in, or are we, or, or do we want things going on in our town in the, you know, new things in the here and now, and how yeah. does that operate when there are things in the town that do need preserving, and where's that successful balance? between preservation and, and the town having a life of its own. Yeah, definitely. That's so interesting. Tom, did you have something? Uh, well, it was just it was just a reflection on, I suppose, some of that thinking around uh, development-led archaeology or even that response to the imminent, you know, considering the imminent loss in the, in the, in the 19th century of, of Seaford Head um, and that, that rescue kind of instinct, which is really interesting and uh, and to think about the question of when we make an intervention, typically a lot of our interventions are at the point of loss. Mm -hmm. They are at that very immediate point of loss. And, and there's a there's a, often a very good reason for that, which is around our resources and, and 
things that we can bring to bear and, uh, and, and when. And, and there's also something really interesting about maybe the, the intensity of emotion and connection mm. that comes through that imminence of loss. But there's also then a question there for me about, you know, if, if, we, if we knew a development was going in, knew 100% for sure that it was going in, in 50 years time, when, when would we make our intervention? When would we go in and do our recording to understand that site better? Would it, would it still be closer to the point of loss? Or would we try and do it earlier and give people more of an opportunity and ourselves more of an opportunity to share, to share that knowledge? And, and coastal change is, is perhaps one of the few scenarios where, where we know loss in some instances is going to happen. It is going to happen. Um, it's just a question of, of when. And uh, yeah, that, that's, it's, it's an interesting thought, I suppose, about when we choose to make that intervention. Definitely. I wonder if the difference between sort of commercial archaeology and development-led archaeology is we know when, right? Like we know when a house is going to be built because the developer has to have archaeological intervention, first of all, et cetera, et cetera. But the next storm could could take a huge chunk off of Seaford Head and, and off of so many of our coastal sites. So that when intervention, like, you know, I think it's as, as urgent as it as it could be because we literally don't know when these things might be lost. But that question of when and those sorts of tipping points um, and then also working back from some of those tipping points like Tom was describing, if you know that's going to happen, what action would you take? A, a, a really quite, um, quite challenging. Um, in climate change adaptation, that is described as an adaptation pathway. So that idea that there isn't, um, we don't even know sometimes where we're going to end up. <laughs> it's an open-ended question. We know that things are changing. We've got a pretty good idea um, to about the middle of this century. Beyond that, depending on how we behave now with our carbon reduction, things things can get pretty pretty wildly different. Um, one of the, the challenges with that adaptive pathway is that you need to, to make decisions at different points. Doing nothing is a decision, mm. and it's often not a particularly helpful decision for, for anybody. Mm. Um, so one of the approaches that we've been developing with um, researcher called Caitlin De Silvia at the University of Exeter and with colleagues at the National Trust and at UCL is, is an approach that we're calling adaptive release. It's about thinking about um, the future of these places that are going to undergo some quite inevit inevitable and quite challenging um, changes, but how at each point in that process can we bring the, the best out of them? How can we think about that, that change and that transformation in a positive way? In some instances, that might be using that opportunity to undertake that archaeological investigation, to learn about these sites and the information that they hold about our past. In others, it might also be realizing some of the natural environment potential, mm. um, some of the opportunities for biodiversity, or indeed for just access and understanding and, and, and seeing these sites. So we're, we're at very actively thinking about how we can turn what, what can be a bit of a doom and gloom story into something that's actually, a, there are positive strands to this. Also recognizing that we, it's not a linear path, it's not straightforward. We don't know when that lump of cliff is gonna fall off but we still have to start planning for and taking action. And we might want to revise whether that action that we've taken is still the right approach and change those approaches as we go. There's no single um, trajectory that we need to take. Um, and that iterative and reflexive process, is it can be pretty challenging. It's not what we're used to, 
Um, I think John's describing developer funded excavation. You, you know, something's going to be built. You know, that site isn't going to exist. You go in and you excavate in a proportionate way to gather that information. This is a more challenging situation because it's not quite as simple. The timelines aren't as simple. And coastal erosion is unusual in that you are talking about pretty much complete loss when, when, when this, you know, when things fall, fall into the sea, they tend not to come back again. But there are other circumstances which we will see quite significant changes and, and, and loss of aspects of sites where it's not quite as, as, as sort of black and white as being in existence or being part of the, the seabed. Um, mm. There's a final point. Um, as an archaeologist, one of the things I find most fascinating about these sites along the coast is um, that there is a we do have archaeology on the seabed. <laughs> so there are many places that were once on land and are yeah. now archaeology that's now underwater now that the taphonomy in, in archaeological terms that that site formation process how does something that's on the land become something that's now underwater archaeology um i've got a, a a real yearning to really maybe make the most of some of these places to really understand that um that site formation a little bit better oh experimental archaeology into <laughs> into sites becoming underwater ah interesting that would be really cool john what I was going to say was um, just the just the change that is going to happen at, at Seaford Head. So every site will be different. Seaford Head has got 80 metre high cliffs. You know, it's, it's very dangerous up there as Admiral attest. Um, and it's not just the, the bits that are falling into the sea that are lost. We can't operate within the first 20 metres of that cliff edge now. Um, it's, it's not safe to do so. We wouldn't we wouldn't want to be digging holes and destabilizing the ground up there. It, it could be disastrous. Um, so what we're already looking at now is any further sort of excavation or anything that happened, it would have to be, you know, already a substantial distance back from, from the cliff. When we're planning um, anything for, for the future up there, we've got to consider, actually, we've got to go a lot further back than, than what is, is immediately apparent. I mean, I understand that, and again, on, on coastal sites like Seaford Head, there's an attraction to be close to that coastal edge, that, uh, you know, liminal area between the land and the sea and, and all the rest of it. The coastal path sits there. People enjoy playing golf on that course and, and just going there as sightseers because it's exciting to stand on the top of those cliffs. But those those amenities that are attracted by that space, such as the coastal path and some of the golf links, you know, again, when Seaford Town Council are going to be looking at the management of that site in the future, they're going to have to take into account that it's, it's not just a case, you can't just move the path back, you know, five metres or just move the golf course links just back five metres because, you know, the next year that could go as well. So how are you going to manage this space effectively and safely so so that it can still be still be used? It's, yeah, some interesting challenges. Yeah, I think John summed it up perfectly. The course is both an amazing place and a very challenging place at one of the same time because the site is iconic. And you say, and we're lucky people come from golfers come from all over the country to stand on that 18th tee because that's an incredible view and an incredible hole to play. Um, but at the same time, we have to face the reality of, of the coastal erosion and what's to come. Um, and so that's, that's what we're doing, um, where the, the work, work has begun in terms of 
in terms of modification of the course. So the 17th green and the 18th tee are the bits that are in the line of, are directly, that's where the cliffs come in. Uh, that's where they are. So that's the bits that, that's got to move. The rest of the course is, is, not, is not at the cliff edge in the way that those parts are. Um, so so those, those are the bits and we have plans to, to move them. Um, but obviously in, con in, in consultation with and in the context of the partners around us mm. in terms of making sure the solution is appropriate for the site and in keeping with what the future of the site needs to be. We also, one other quick thing on sort of the, 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 the to today challenges mm. is around, yes, it, you know, we still have people coming to our town who want to go and stand on the edge of a cliff. You know, that's a massive challenge for us. Mm. Um, and, and in some ways, you know, the erosion is making the, the cliff edge even more dramatic and even more attractive for, 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 for a selfie on a cliff edge. Mm. So there's, there's, there's huge public safety issues around the coastal erosion that we're having to grapple with, with the, as a council as well. I was just thinking about that, that kind of danger element bringing value to those places. And actually, in some ways, we do see that it's not danger as much, but in archaeology heritage, the rarity value or, or the reason that these little fragments from the past are so precious is because so much has been lost. So this kind of irony um, that, that sort of part of the currency almost of the value of these places is, is one that's based in in, in the in the large scale loss of other other aspects mm. of this um and and so thinking about the the ways in which perhaps certain categories of of archaeological site and heritage asset are more vulnerable to these processes and i think we're only just beginning to think about and be a, be in a position to identify which mm. um sits so, so scientifically um and systematically but we will find that certain sites are more exposed, more vulnerable, and therefore the rarity of those and the importance of understanding those. We're going back to that, that idea of prioritising. Um, mm. Is it, that's a that's a really critical factor. So this particular um, hillfort, the, the the location, it's on the coastline. The way in which it has a relationship with it, that landscape and seascape and, and had in the past is, um, is something that is of particular interest for that particular site um, that, that perhaps is something that does set it apart from other similar constructions of that period. Um, so, so I think that's, yeah, that's another, another strand of that, that kind of rare, rare fragments. We, we are going to be losing those, those coastal um, sites of that period. And um, the other thing, I, I, I've got a question, am I allowed to ask a question? Of course um, of, of John, but I'm kind of wondering what, what we know about the abandonment and the end of the kind of the useful life of that settlement. Um, and I'm wondering whether that might be an interesting thing to explore as we're looking at the loss of the site. So it was lost in one way in the past when people stopped living and using it, maintaining it. And what was that process? Is it a sudden one? Is it a gradual one? And, and how does that kind of mirror? Is there a kind of poetry in how that relates to, to what's happening to it today? Short answer is I don't think we know. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm afraid, um, you know, uh, the, the from the material culture that's been recovered from the site and just those two small excavations um, suggested that it was uh, that it was Middle Iron Age and date, although there hasn't been a reappraisal of that material culture, so it, you know, it could change. And that there were some, uh, there were also Roman finds associated with it. That's pretty much our sum knowledge. 
Um, so its transition, whether or not it was still uh, an active uh, place um, when the Romans arrived and whether it got taken over and, and continued in use, I'd, you know, these are all research questions that, that could be answered. Uh, or you know could be attempted to be answered but no we don't we don't understand and I suppose that's uh, that's the thing all of our some knowledge like I said before came from really two small excavations mm. on the site that only you know were only maybe a week two weeks at most both of these locations and that's where all of our some knowledge has come from um, presumably there's many sites out there that haven't even had those two small excavations happen um, and they were a response in the past to imminent loss as well you know it's um, so I, I think there's these are actions uh, repeating themselves. I was just going to add I think it's really interesting that you've used that sense of you know is there a poetry I think there is some uh, an important story we could postulate around um contemporary challenges being reflected in the past and in, in how people have also had to adapt to change. And we know that there's a pretty major shift in the way society functions between the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. And we could postulate that there was an environmental factor within that. We don't know, you know, but what makes society change so fundamentally? Um, you know, maybe there were changes in terms of agriculture which affected economy, which affected how people lived. You know, we know that there are sites in places like Turkey where the animal bone assemblages show that people move from um, predominantly uh, having cattle to goat. Well, what do we know about goats? They're more drought resistant. So it does make you start to consider, are we seeing adaptive practice? And can we start telling a story about that? And that's perhaps not something we've done particularly well so far but it could be something that we could potentially do better because I think one of the biggest challenges at the moment is we all know that our own experience of living is that the whole world revolves around each of us as individuals that's that's how as human beings we're we're brought up to think so you know when we're asked to adapt our behavior or when we're asked to face up to challenges that are completely outside of our control it's very hard to accept that it's very hard to accept that your life needs to change whereas actually we've got a long history that the archaeological record can tell us of people that have constantly been in a state of adaptation and have constantly had to adapt whether to um, social change and 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 actually external factors beyond their control environmental um, resource invasion you know we've had to adapt but I don't think we tell that story strongly enough about adaptation generally and the potential adaptation that's happened previously around the environment yeah the the point about adaptation is one that I often make when I'm talking to people about um about climate change and heritage um it's a really miserable topic, climate change, let's face it. It, it. It's not one that leaves you feeling in a happy place. So one of the things that I, I'm a Paleolithic archaeologist, so my PhD research is in how people responded to, to changes and challenges over the past million years um, and how that's reflected in, in stone tool technology and, and, and spatial distribution of, of information, etc. But one of the things that characterizes us as a species is our incredible ability to adapt. And that really should give us heart. We are very good at responding and adapting to challenges of, of all sorts, including of our own making. Um, and we see that time and time again in the archeological record. Uh, the other point, um, one that uh, a friend and, and colleague of mine from the States often makes, uh, Marcy Rockman, she's talked about every place has a climate story. 
And I think that's another aspect of what you're describing, Nushka, is the um, that the idea that we can use those stories of that mm. human adaptability, our persistence, our ability to respond and to, to these challenges, but also the way in which those environmental changes and that climate story of a place can can take us from that past into the into the future. Since humans have been in Britain, let alone elsewhere in the world, we've seen multiple periods of ice age and warming periods. Mm. The uh, the nature of the fauna and the nature of our uh, environment has changed dramatically. It's just that we've been in this little sort of like period recently, which has been relatively stable, and um, and uh, and and it seems to us as though it's always been like this, but it hasn't, and it hasn't for humans either people exactly like us maybe in more archaic, archaic terms but it, it it has happened in the past and we have survived and we're still here so right so we know that humans have the capacity to adapt to this change and we also know that people for example living in Seaford are painfully aware of of coastal erosion and and loss that is going on around them so how do we start to include them in these conversations Adam I'll take two quick points. I'm going to go back to the previous conversation briefly. Sorry, carry on. That's right. Just to say that Seaford is an example of previous adaptation at all as well, uh, John, because you may be aware of this, but, but we're next to a place called New Haven, because in Elizabethan mm -hmm. towns, there was a huge storm that redirected the River Ouse. So the river mouth used to be in Seaford, and now it's up the coast at, at, sea, at, at New Haven. So our town went through a complete, you know, storm climate caused shock in the 16th century when the river mm. that went through town suddenly went three miles up land because because of a huge storm uh, and so the history of the town was a, had to adapt to that change in circumstance here so it's nothing new for us to having to adapt to right. the large change because that that elizabethan storm literally moved the river so that's a that's something that, that's part of the context of the town and the site i think john do you do you, do you think that's reassuring because I get that sense that this kind of thing is it is about our is about personal individual and kind of community resilience, understanding that kind of um, yeah it's it's really interesting some of the research that's kind of coming through around uh, around well being and heritage and and just just being around heritage and what it does and I think the the fancy name is ontological security, but it, it the sense of of um, of continuity and and of uh, and of a rootedness and uh and and that actually that sense of, of content almost continuity of change mm. or, or you know as as the 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 one inevitable thing in life um yeah i i'm, I'm really interested to hear you whether you feel like that really actually plays out for people i d i i don't know whether um i think people understand that in the broader sense um, I think, and and yes, there's lots of stories of, um, especially along the south coast, of big storm events like Winchelsea being completely wiped out, New mm. Romney being wiped out as well at different at different times, and these uh, and these settlements changing and um, and uh, and and a resilience, I suppose, to to remain still within that landscape and adapt and, and even rebuild your town again on a slightly higher place five miles away. You know that's that's all happened. I think I think something changed maybe in the Victorian period where we started really starting to think that we could. Uh, conquer nature and uh, and and change the world and you see that in the in the 
really substantial sea defences and things that were built during, during that period. And we're still living with those Victorian seafronts and that feeling, I think, of permanence that, um, that they try to inspire. You know, we can beat everything with enough steel and concrete, you know, and, and maybe the, the, the level of change that we potentially might be experiencing now in the near future is, is such where we're going to have to look back more towards our more adaptive past yeah I, I think that's totally it that that kind of disconnect not with, with almost every aspect of our lives actually particularly acute in the last few decades um even from going um thinking about when i learned to drive i could open the bonnet of that car and vaguely have a chance of fixing something i wouldn't even attempt that now let alone with an electric car i wouldn't have a clue um, and, and we are increasingly detached from those things through which we live our lives, including with the elements, with our places, with that knowledge that you build a house where it's most likely to stay up, <laughs> hopefully for a long time, because you know how the different elements work, the prevailing wind, the landscape, that level of vernacular, local, traditional knowledge is, is something that we have lost. Um, and I really hesitate to use the word because it takes us could take us down a whole other rabbit hole and do another podcast on this one day and I'll come <laughs> back and talk to you. But but we there's a lot of conversations about wilding of our natural spaces. But actually, it's our minds and our relationship with those spaces that I think also needs a little bit of that that reconnecting that that wilding. Um, also, sticking to the south coast, we have King Canute, um, who was a a king who sat. I think it's actually in my home stomping ground of around Chichester Langston Harbour area where he was rumoured to, to have proved to prove his fallibility someone his his people were saying you are um so powerful you could tell you know tell tell anything make anything happen and he said I'm I'm not and I'm going to prove it to you because I'm going to tell the tide to go away and stop and of course the tide didn't stop um and um and I think that's that's kind of where we are now perhaps some of these archaeological sites can help do a bit of king commuting and going you know what <laughs> We're, we've got a full sense of security here, guys. Um, those Victorians have got a lot to answer for. But actually um, relearning some of that, that humility about our relationship with, with these natural processes. I was just going to add, I think um, with the Seaford Head project, the thing that we really wanted to do is not only communicate the archaeological discoveries, but we wanted to play with how we communicate the idea of loss. Um, which is why we're also working with an artist. So we're working with the artist Alina Azadeh. Her creative practice is very much focused on the Sussex Heritage Coast. Um, I think it could be really interesting because it's an opportunity to put out a series of um, digital resources that give people the practical news, you know, the update on what's happened and what's been discovered and what we infer. It's giving people the insights into the policy and practitioner discussions like we're doing here. We're trying to open up this conversation, but it's also going to explore what a site might mean to us emotively. When we learn about it, we know more about it. We might feel differently about it as a result. And then we're told it, it, it's going. 
And we don't know the rate at which it's going, but we think it's going quicker than it was. And what will be fascinating is it, it's quite a passive form of engagement because obviously the work we've done at Seaford has had to be quite rapid by nature. There were these increasing cliff, cliff losses from 2015. The most recent one made us realise because you could see things in the cliff pro, in the chalk profile in terms of archaeological features, we had to do something. So it's quite passive engagement, but it will be fascinating to see how the public comments on these assets and is it different when we communicate um, a bit more from the heart than perhaps when we communicate from the head it will be quite it's just a quite interesting way to play with this and I think it comes back to what you've said Hannah it's it's also a little bit about rewilding the mind and thinking about a space differently I love that rewilding the mind (laughs) Adam did you have something to add yeah I, I wanted to sort of pick up on what people were saying about Yes, the, the, the days of just, you know, sitting in a landscape, it will all be fine uh, and we can control everything and that's that are, you know, are behind us and people, and there's a growing recognition of that, especially in a, a coastal area like Seaford. Um, and actually to live in a coastal town, you have to have some, well, it's helpful to have some of that awareness really mm. of the fragility of the landscape you're in, the context you're in and all those sorts of things. So just quickly, but for example, Storm Eunice did damage to our seafront because it was a southwest wind with a storm force wind. So it caused, because we face southwest, so the storm surge came from the direction, in, in the direction we're facing and therefore we have flooding because of it. Um, so if people get, you know, people's knowledge increases, they're better able to be resilient in the context of what's going on. This is what I'm trying to say, really. Mm. Rather than just sort of sitting, I could be living anywhere, it being different. It is different in a coastal area, and we're on the front line of the coast, the climate mm. change. I think in terms of public engagement, I think as town council, we're, we think we're quite, you know, be quite, quite humble about this. How can the public get more engaged and involved? Well, we noticed, as I say, that, for example, our partner, Sister Wildlife Trust, do a brilliant job at Seaford Head of getting loads of public engaged and, and loads of volunteering goes up there, goes on there. So, so really it is the on-the-ground community relations like them who can really help the public to get more involved and play a role and do something. And that's that's how we're trying to see how this project can best be used, is, is helping to engage that public energy and get it to grow even stronger. I think um, one thing that's come to mind for me as well is that there are a lot of instances when landscape change is proposed where we consult as standards. So we do that through our local authorities. We do that through a planning process. Do we have a process for consulting on heritage at risk? Do we have a vehicle or a mechanism that enables us to do that at national level or or at local level? Because I think the significant thing that we can't lose in this is it's a national issue, but it's felt differently at local level because our local identities are very personal to ourselves. And, you know, as Adam has said, as a coastal community in Seaford, that the people of Seaford are at the forefront of coastal change. But it does strike me that we have these mechanisms and these mechanisms are fallible. So if you think about the people that might respond to a to a planning application, there's a certain degree of pre-engagement there in terms of assuming who's going to respond. We know as a heritage sector, we don't serve youth voice as well as we could. We, we're underrepresented in that area. And that's the generation that's going to be taking taking hold of the decisions we make today in terms of the heritage of the future but but we lack a a mechanism I suppose it's very much based on local level feeling I mean some of our work is very reactive it's based on local people coming and saying this is important to us could you please act well what if we have a situation as we do at Seaford Head where 
we don't fully know how aware people are of the fact there's a Bronze Age barrow there and an Iron Age hill fort because of the subsequent changes to the landscape. So our first principle is to tell people about it and then see if that changes value. But it just struck me that there's other landscape change we consult on and we do, we do so in a very structured manner. But with heritage at risk, we don't for a variety of factors. Hannah, you're definitely best placed, I think, to, to talk about <laughs> policy around heritage loss. Oh, where I have to start pointing out where my personal views might stray. <laughs> Those of my organisation. Um, there's a number of things that, that kind of come to mind in this. One, actually, is around, we're talking here very much as, as I know, disembodied professionals about a sector. We are all individuals who work in heritage because we are driven passionate about heritage and, and why it matters and and it's not a um and, and we're leaving that out of it and I'm finding that very that's very interesting that I'm pretty sure all of us have got personal views about this which we're probably holding back on um and and I think that is something I see an awful lot in the way in which the heritage sector talks about this that we find it much easier to um put on a, a kind of a mask of impartiality hide behind the discipline the processes and not necessarily engage as, as as human as human beings in this and and that can make us seem sometimes i think like like we don't care or we don't understand but it also can can stop us really thinking through how you might undertake some of those processes that i think anishka you just describing mm. um i'm really thinking about why all this I means it why all this matters that heritage is about people um and sometimes we might need to be a bit better at, at letting some of that that humanness come through um but there's another um aspect of that heritage at risk so there's also a a challenge because if we understand the risks to heritage or to anything in fact but to heritage we have a responsibility i think to communicate that because that heritage is it, it, it shared it's, it's commonly held and, and understood to be of interest and importance to a wide range of people and communities so we have a responsibility to communicate that there's a lot of concern i think that when we communicate that risk we're taking responsibility for that risk and as we face an increasingly um, exacerbated processes of, of, of loss and decay and, and erosion of our heritage because of the challenges of climate change in particular, we are, um, we are going to see increased um, increase in our heritage that is at risk from loss. And that is going to feel like a failure for policymakers who are tasked with looking after it. But we have to absolutely start to communicate those challenges and that loss. It doesn't mean that we're responsible for that, but we are responsible for communicating it. We are responsible for helping people think about what they would like to do about it whilst recognising all those challenges. And it's a really difficult one to navigate. Um, there's another concept that I've heard described, and actually Marcy, who, who I referred to earlier, who talks about the climate stories, has used this as an example, um, the cultural suitcase. So there's a, a, a kind of, I think the example she gives comes from a, an experience that she had of, of her being involved in a, a fire in her home and having to decide what she wanted to take with her. And there's actually a web page, I think it's 
a burning building or something like that, where they ask people to say, what would you take with you if your home's on fire? What do you take? And the objects that people choose, they, they take photos and describe and often explain why they take those objects with them and what they mean to them. And we're in a similar position here in terms of those priorities and those choices we make. And through those processes that you were describing, Nushka, the ultimate question is, what do people want in their cultural mm. suitcase? As, as, we, as we look forward, we can't take everything, but what is it that people want? And, and we have to have those difficult conversations. We have a responsibility to tell people when the house is on fire um, and that we have to start making those decisions. And we have to make them together. It's, it's not for the heritage profession to make a, a loan, whether that's policymakers or, or practitioners. I think there's a couple of things that have come for my, to mind for me there. I suppose there's the realisation that because we care a lot, we're possibly not always the best people to make those decisions anyway, because perhaps we care too much. But also it strikes me that, you know, the, the people that walk that coastal path at Seaford are probably our best allies in monitoring change at that site. But we assume that they will care about it enough to do that. We make certain assumptions, I think, around citizen science. And the basis of that model working is exactly what Hannah says, is we've got to share more of the space that we occupy, share our knowledge in a way that is... Um, you know, able to be absorbed by as broad an audience as possible, be open in the conversation. I think that's what we need to do because it is a collective decision. And I think we talk a lot about consultation, but actually that still infers a degree of hierarchy. I think it's it's having a wider conversation is, is what it's about ultimately. Um, but I, I do agree. I, I think also there's, a, there's another issue here, which is success around heritage at risk is very much about reducing the number the reality is we're going to see more heritage going on the at-risk register and that's not necessarily a sign of failure what it is is a sign that we're recognizing that things are at risk and I think we have to change what what well it's not even about success we have to change what heritage at risk is about and how we communicate the purpose and its function um, and it, it, it is a useful tool in starting those conversations I just don't think we've quite got there yet in, in making those conversations really meaningful. I think it's really interesting what your PhD student is doing, what Tanya's doing around this idea of almost a gaming mentality around thinking about heritage. I think that's quite fascinating. And again, for me, it comes back to, are there ways that we could have a conversation that is more accessible to a broader range of people? And I'm thinking again here about how do we engage younger people in this? Because they're inheriting the decisions that we're making today. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And and those comments around, you know, there is um I think there is a, a bit of a solace in the science and and, and a safety in a, in a degree of detachment. And the, the truth is, uh, I think anyone working in heritage is doing it because because they have a profound belief deep inside them that it can just enrich people's lives and be transformative for people. And it is that message of four people. And it's and it's all about emotional connection and yeah. the universality of that kind of emotional um connection. And mm. and and that's how we're we're gonna reach people. And you know, it's it, sometimes it feels like cliches that we come across, but this sort of thing around that, you know, every anyone could be an archaeologist. It's about imagining the past, it's about storytelling, it's about empathy and uh and, and being able to relate to to other people as people just happen to be gone for a little while or a long while but um but those are the those are the 
real skills and a way of looking and questioning the world around you. And, and it's so interesting that the coast could be, could be a space where that particularly happens, where, where, we, where we can particularly take that approach uh, because of that aspect of, of loss. And that also it has more of a sense of a kind of democratization, if that's a word, um, of, of, of the heritage in, mm. in that space, just by the very nature of how, how it is in the landscape and, and, the, and the nature of the impending sort of loss, because that, that landscape in a way loses its value for, for other things and increases the value for what's already there to be lost, I think. And there's something really interesting in that. I think um, that, I think what Hannah was saying about us being emotional about our subject is, is key. And I, and I think people are very emotional about specific sites and things in the landscape as well. And, uh, and can also sort of like uh, start uh, attributing blame when they're not saved and, and what have you. And I think that's a real issue when it comes to discussing this, um, this, uh, this subject. Um, I think that's why sites like Seaford Head play such uh, an important role in in starting this discussion because there's no you know Seaford Head's important um, but at the same time you know it's a 80 meter high cliff that's open to the sea there's really very little that can be done you know um, in order to protect that from further cliff fall so therefore the the emotions taken out of it a little bit in terms of Seaford Town Council or East Sussex County Council, what are you doing to protect Seaford Head? Well, you know, we, we can't in the face of all of this. And that allows us to, to have this discussion using Seaford Head, um, whereas with other more emotive sites, maybe we couldn't broach that. But it's, it's, it is about sort of like larger agencies and larger bodies than ourselves taking that up and, and using this example as, as a sort of like a, you know, so coastal change is happening so things are being lost um such as seaford head and use that as a as a less emotive example to uh, to have that debate it gives us permission doesn't it? It, it it's it's a permission to think differently mm. and maybe there's something that we can learn from that about how to give ourselves that permission elsewhere as well actually because it's quite unique to the coast very unique for us to be having this kind of conversation this kind of conversation i don't think happens in, in other contexts not really that i've come across so there's, there's something to be taken from that yeah there's a, a kind of sobering thought in all of this about that kind of tough the tough decisions I mean, places like seaford as you say there's nothing to be done but we know the numbers are going to increase we know that this is an issue that's coming now i haven't done the calculations but my back of a fag packet workings out reckon that even if we deployed all of the resources at our disposal um, all of the archaeologists in the country to do nothing but to record sites that we know are going to be lost in the next 20 years we couldn't do it so this is the, we've got to be realistic about the challenges and right at the beginning tom was talking about that that prioritization but we have to be very honest with other people about that now we're, we're left with a number of choices so um that idea of engaging and and empowering communities is part of that also engaging and empowering more people to be archaeologists as tom said anyone can be an archaeologist 
do we need to really start to think really carefully about how most effectively we can do that to enable people to to actually be able to record in these places before they are before they are lost um and and what does what does that process look like um how how does that happen um and and what sort of shift does that need in our sector um to to really think about how we start to share some of that knowledge and what does that mean then to be a professional archaeologist mm. or heritage worker um and and the sorts of responsibility that that might have to to sort of deploy some of these these tasks um there's also a, a kind of moral element as well for all of the archaeologists amateur and professional and and all of the research that goes on is it um justifiable to research sites that aren't under threat to undertake mm -hmm. and use those resources to excavate record places where actually they they're really not threatened either by development or by these processes um, and I think that's a question that we probably need to ask ourselves um, before we we sort of deploy <laughs> undertake work um, I was just going to say, I think, you know, if community archaeology groups alone mobilise to focus more on sites at threat than perhaps sites that have a low, you know, are actually safe underground where they are, they have, they might have a strong local interest, but, you know, let that lie and, and focus on what is at risk. That could be quite powerful in itself if community archaeology and the voluntary um, archaeological societies and groups mobilised in that direction. Um I think just as an observation as well, I, I think, and again, sort of very much speaking here as someone who comes from a museums and galleries background and what I'm observing in that sector, I think we're at a place at the moment where people are seeking um, certainties. You know, they're looking for certainties and that's why I think um, the past and interpretation of the past has become such a contested issue generally. I think actually as a positive, there could be something very powerful in engaging people in the story of loss. You know, actually, there could be certainties around uncertainties if we're clever about how we get people involved in that conversation. And actually, that could increase public value for heritage at risk because, you know, the flip of the coin is... Why should anyone care that Seaford Head's going to fall into the sea? That's the flip of the coin. It comes back to that idea of telling stories, creating the emotional connection, creating the relevance. But I think at a time when people are looking for certainties, there can be positive ways we can play with uncertainty in that in that space. I think there is a, a real question of resources um, when it comes to this as well. And um, and you know if if we think of the hundreds or thousands of sites that could be impacted by in, in the next 20 years, um, we could try and list them in terms of what is the most important archaeologically, um, or we could list them um, in terms of what it, which sites have a uh, engaged local community, which will actually step up and do something, or we could list them as what sites are actually controlled by uh, like landowners that would actually stand up and do something. And also sort of like uh, whether or not there's any money um, in, in there to, to, to do it in the first instance. Mm. It, it might not be the most archaeologically valuable site that ends up getting the, the most attention. It might be because there's a site where there's an engaged local population mm. that are willing to actually stand up and do something. Um, uh, it's, it's getting over all of those 
different sort of like a, a values of a site, I, I suppose. And it's and, and well, and, and and what is its value? You know, is its value mm. archaeological? Is its value to the local populace? It's um, it's a complicated issue. But at the end of the day, even for a volunteer excavation or a volunteer project, you still need some form of funding. And um, and mm -hmm. a lot of these projects will be going to bodies like heritage lottery funding or, or, or something along those lines. There's not too many other places where you could go and get a pot of money for such a project. I mean, I know I've, mm. I've applied for it and it's, it's not easy. And, um, and, and, and therefore, yeah, realistically, how, how much will actually get done? I don't know. I don't want to be negative about it. It's just <laughs> that it's, you know, my day-to-day -day job is trying to find budgets to deal with heritage <laughs> so mm. it's like a, as i'm sure like many of yours is as well so it's a maybe there's a a case to really put across more strongly what those benefits are from doing that kind of work and the breadth of benefits for you know economic benefits around tourism engaging yes. with creative industries yeah. you know as well as the benefits for people being involved in it who come out with higher levels of of subjective well-being they feel better about themselves they feel more connected to a community um you know maybe we can do more to to really shout about that tom i know, I know uh that a colleague of mine sarah wolferston is working with the national trust at the moment looking at um how you can best evidence uh like impact from your various things and it's programs like that evidencing that impact and I, I suppose national trust is well placed to, uh, with its army of volunteers and, uh, and 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 what have you to be able to evidence maybe some of some of that which would be fantastic because it's mm. it's it's only if if archaeology and the benefits of investigating these sites the greater health benefits and 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 other things like that get get noticed and worked into larger programs that um that uh, I, I think more towards this could be done yeah it's win-win isn't it as long as we can find the money like <laughs> people are happy the archaeology is recorded but money <laughs> it's interesting that the talk about valuing um heritage because there is work ongoing at the moment with dcms yeah. um that historic england and others have been involved with um looking at culture and heritage capital and exactly that challenge. I think economists you call it non-use values. Um, mm. So how how we can really articulate those benefits um, to people and to places, and and there are some existing tools that, that start to do that. But I think we know that we're grossly underestimating the the importance of that. And I think the other element, going back to that that question that we asked earlier about how can people value what they don't know about, that actually part of I think certainly for me, um, the the well-being value of heritage, in particular archaeology, is the the benefits gained from that sense of discovery. Mm. Um, whether that's discovery by visiting a place and undertaking that research to understand something more about it, or that discovery that you know that thrill you get through excavating and finding something that's been buried in the ground for so many years, um, that that is a it's a very real feeling of discovery and I think maybe there's some elements of that as you, you were saying Anushka that using that uncertainty as a as a means of having positive conversations mm. actually it's that sense of discovery 
that perhaps you can only have that with something that's uncertain of something that's not known and that's the real magic of of of, of archaeology for, for me and I suspect for many others so so something about that that we can help to capture but um yeah watch this space for more on culture and heritage capital from um from our friends in in government <laughs> Um, unless anyone else had very pressing points to make, I'll move on to what next for CFA TED. So now that we've done this survey, now that we've engaged with policymakers at this moment, what what will we do with CFA TED? Adam and John, I, I think this is for you both to to talk about. Again, it goes back to what I was saying before. It's um, it's 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 where the resources lie. Um, whether the desire is there with the local population to do something. Um, I, I, I want to get this project finalised. I, I want to get these uh, podcasts um, and digital outreach aspects out and the full report out. And I want to uh, want to start gauging uh, the response from the public. And then it's a discussion with Adam and Seaford Town Council as to um, how they potentially want to take that further. Or, or not and also as as adam was talking uh, before about um the remodeling of the golf course or coastal path and whether or not um the project can uh, help with that maybe use our reporting and some of the uh our digital outreach projects and the responses to them as evidence in a in a grant application um i'm not too sure yet you know it's um there's lots of options there but it's um it's yeah it's it's what Seaford Town Council and what the people of Seaford like really ultimately want want to do. That's that's what will drive it. Yeah, if if I may, with the with the digital outreach um, products that we'll be creating, if you're if you live in Seaford and you're listening to this, like I want to know about that. Like, can you leave a comment and and tell us what you think about this? And you know, we we're really trying to engage the public on this and any sort of insight that you can give is is very much appreciated because other projects may follow the Seaford Head model. This project is aiming to be a replicable project mm. that we can then apply to different sites at risk. So if podcasts aren't working for you, then let us know. Um, or if, if you're, you know, if, if our video project uh, products really, really take off, then we'll focus on them. You know, it's engaging local press, all of these things. It's, it's not just the archaeology that we're evaluating in, in this project. It's it's also the method by which we communicate it. I'm really glad what, to hear what you said. I mean, one of the things for us as the council that's so exciting about this project is the way it is creating a template for future practice. Not only this partnership between the different stakeholders involved, including us as landowners and being a value partner within the project, uh, as well as being part of the local council as well. But also, as I say, what do we do? When we're, you know, we're, when when we're facing the challenges that the coastal erosion, climate change is bringing us, and here is a model where we're we're taking the approach to record what we can before it is never to be lost, and that's a really important template going forward. It also helps to inform our approach as custodians and landowners of, across the site. Really, I mean that that's partly in, informed by the approach we're already taking in terms of how we're managing. The golf course to, is in the context of climate emergency and therefore a lot of ecological practice happening within the golf course wildlife corridors etc and seeing it actually as a green space where we can actually really do take action around climate emergency and support and develop the 
you know, really support support the survival of our local ecology in our area, really. And how does this this work operate within that context? How it can help us in terms of taking forward the right approach to take around responding to climate emergency. And that's why this project is so important to us. Definitely. Any further thoughts from anyone? Any final thoughts? No? All that remains then, I think, is to thank Historic England again for funding this project and the South Downs National Park Authority for contributions making things like this podcast possible. Um, you can find links to all of the project outputs as, as they come out in the show notes. Um, and thank you so much to all of you for coming and speaking today. It's been absolutely incredible to, to hear all your points of view. I think all that's left is to say goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you, everyone. The Seaford Head Project is funded by Historic England with contributions from the South Downs National Park Authority. For more information about the project, see the show notes or visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash archaeology south east forward slash Seaford head.